to turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, <clears throat> we have some folks coming now that have extra Bibles. We'd love to give you the Bible. If you're visiting with us, I find so many people have said, ah, I already read the Bible, it's boring, or I don't understand it, and I want to encourage you to give it another shot. Read it with this lens. The Bible's not a book to tell you how to be good to get to heaven. It tells a great story of how God came to rescue sinners through faith in the Lord Jesus who died and rose again. So all of the Bible is profitable. All of the Bible is truth. And one of the things that we learn how to do is to read the Bible and interpret it. The Bible says false teachers twist Scripture, but Christians study Scripture and learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. And we're going to find that there are some difficult passage, passages in the Bible. This is one of them. And that's why we go verse by verse through the Bible, so we don't skip on our hobby horses. But this is a difficult passage. I want to talk about it in a moment. But while you're turning to Numbers 5, I want to remind you and invite you, this Friday night we have a prayer meeting. Now, your parents had a prayer meeting every Wednesday night. And they just knew that that was part of the local church. And we get it. We don't have time for that, right? But the point is, prayer is a heart and soul of, of, of the community, of individuals. And really want to encourage you to make every effort to come. We do not have childcare, and I apologize for that. However, sometimes it's possible to get somebody to watch the kids, even if only one of you can come. Truly pray that the Spirit of God will, will bring you out here, because we all have many things that we need prayer for, and that's how God works through prayer. So come in and bring your petitions and join us as we pray together. A couple other things, a reminder if you... Somebody asked me this morning, how do I get baptized? We have a baptism coming up in March. There's an announcement about it. Don't forget the women's retreat is coming up on March 17th. You can find out more about that online, and um, there's information outside there. So just let us know if there's anything you want to learn about. Also, pay attention. There's a crosstalk coming up on the 18th on race relations that, that um, Austin's going to lead. That should be really cool. All right, so we're in the book of... Numbers. We're in chapter 5, and I want to do a couple reviews here just to remind you that we said that the book of Numbers is about war and worship. It's about Christians who have, have just like the Israelites, been called out of Egypt, bondage. We've been redeemed by the, by the Lamb, and now we're going somewhere. We're going to the promised land. But during the way, God is calling us to fight spiritual warfare, to stand firm against Satan, but also to rescue those who are held captive by Satan. But all along, we're a worshiping community. We're learning as we're wandering through this world that God's calling us to worship, and he's teaching us how to worship, and he's teaching us how to go to war. And so we, we noted, okay, ready for this? See? There we go. Look at that. Wow. How about that? I, trust me, I didn't invest in getting a new toy, but... I was happy they got one. So they're at Mount Sinai. They're going to spend about, they've been there for two years. Numbers 1 through 10 is 20 days of getting ready to head to the promised land. So with that in mind, we saw that there's three sections to numbers. The first part is God mobilizing his people. In the first four chapters, somebody who visited for the first time, he said, man, numbers is really boring. But if you, if you listened to last week's sermon, you saw that there was a reason why God had a census, chapters 1 and 2, as he gathered his people together for war, and then chapters 3 and 4, he gathered them for worship, and we talked about how they came God's way through the sacrifice, or through the priesthood, and through the blood of the Lamb. 
But today we're going to look at some good housekeeping, some, some purifying of God's people for departure. And, and in essence, I think maybe the biggest thing that we come away with is that promised land people, right? If you're a Christian, you're, you're no longer in this world. The Bible, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. Our citizenship's in heaven. We're on a journey to the kingdom. Promised land people are called to purity. We're called to come to grips with sin. And so this particular section, chapters 5 and 6, today we're going to look at chapter 5, and, and I'll be the first one to say it's a really difficult passage. If I was picking, I would have skipped this chapter because it's difficult. It, it raises a difficult question. It doesn't seem fair to women, but we're going to look at it. We're going to find there were three things in chapter 5 that God was asking his people to do. Number one, remove the presence of sin. Number two, restore people who practice sin. And then third, there was this very odd ritual for people suspected of sin. So let's pray, and then we'll start reading. Lord, as we read your word, may the Holy Spirit help us to learn how to interpret the Bible. It's so cool to see more and more people picking up their Bibles, learning from God's word, learning that man shall not live by bread alone. And I do pray, Father, that you will raise up an army of believers moms and dads, boys and girls, who want to learn God's word, who want to learn how to believe it, how to teach it, how to interpret it, how to apply it to life. And may your word, as the Bible says, run rapidly and be glorified. May you transform our community as the word of the gospel goes forth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's begin with verses one through four. I want to remind you real quick, if you really want to learn to study the Bible, you've never had training in that. Pastor John's offering an awesome course coming up in February, Mining God's Word. There's already over 50 people signed up. It's not too late to be a part of that. But the first thing God says in verses 1 through 4 is let's deal with the presence of sin. But he does it in a ceremonial way, which we would find very odd. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge, and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I, God, dwell in their midst. And you're like, okay, that's just weird, okay? One of the things we need to remember is that this was a period of time in which God had instituted this new covenant with the Israelites. It was called the Law of Moses. And there were some things that were meant to be symbolic, okay? There's nothing sinful in and of itself about a dead person or a discharge or about leprosy. The bigger picture is I want you to see the word everyone who is unclean. The idea of uncleanness is really God's talking about sin. That's the symbol here. And what we're finding is that as a corporate community of God's people, we have to deal with sin in our midst. This idea, if you were to study it, uncleanness, goes all the way through the Bible to the very end. When you're in Revelation chapter 21, when it describes the kingdom of God and the people of God with God dwelling in their midst and the gates of the heavenly city, it says, nothing unclean will enter into it. And so, ceremonially, these things represented Sin. They weren't sin in and of themselves. The sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp just as the Lord had spoken to Moses, thus the sons of Israel did. Now again, what we're trying to learn to do is how do I apply scripture 
to us today. So the big picture I want you to think about here is that not just back then were promised land people called to deal with sin corporately, but even today, God is asking us as a church to corporately deal with the presence of sin. And so if you were to go over to the New Testament, we learn that the Lord Jesus spoke about this as he was forming his church. He said, number one in Matthew 18, if your brother sins, you go to him in private. If he does not repent, you bring two or three with you. If he still doesn't repent, you tell it to the church. And if he still doesn't repent, you remove him and, and, and you excommunicate him. And that seems mean and harsh. But one of the things we have to think about is that God is very serious that sin in the community is destructive. It disrupts the people of God. It defames the name of Jesus. And so he has given us a venue for dealing with sin. It's never vindictive. It's never for punishment. It's always with the purpose of bringing people back into a relationship with Christ. Galatians 6.1 says, If anyone is overtaken with sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And by the way, it says, Look to yourself lest you be tempted. So a test case of this in the New Testament was the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church had a member in the church who was having a relationship with his stepmother. Okay? But the Corinthians had misunderstood Jesus' call to love, this great commandment to love one another. They had missed the distinction between God loves you just as you are versus God loves you so much not to leave you there. So what they were actually doing is boasting that they were such a loving church that they had a guy in their church who was committing incest and they were boasting about that. We even love people and accept that. And Paul said, your boasting isn't good. What you should be doing is mourning over the sin. And then he said this, if anyone calls themselves a Christian and they persist in sins of this nature, lying, thieves, immorality, and so forth, he says, put them out of your midst because a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And so as a church, we're reminded that we are to practice church discipline. We are to go to one another. Nobody likes to do that, but, but we are to, to humbly go to one another, and, and we get it. People are going to play their do not judge me card. Jesus said do not judge. Read that verse in its context. Matthew 7 says do not judge. Then it says get the log out of your eye, but then go to your brother. And so this passage is a simple reminder that corporately, if we love people, we are our brother's keeper. We're not nitpicking and being nosy, but sin within the church will bring God's discipline and it will hinder the work of the Spirit in our midst. So, good reminder. God is simply saying, I want you to remove the presence of sin. Secondly, then, he's going to give us a principle for how to restore people who have practiced sin. And frankly, all of us sin. The Bible says there's not a just man on the earth who doesn't sin. But when you become a Christian, once and for all, you are forgiven of your sins. And then God begins the process of saying, I want to free you from the power of sin. But the Christian experience is one of realizing, hey, Lord, I realize that I've sinned. And I have two choices. I can persist in it. I can cover it or I can repent of it and turn to the cross. And so let's look at this passage. Then 
the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall come and confess his sins, which he has committed. Fair enough, right? Ultimately, remember that any sin we commit is first and foremost against God, right? It's, it's not primarily the horizontal level. It starts with God. And sometimes we're very clever at keeping it a secret. Sometimes when we're confronted, we have the, the real possibility of excusing and denying it or blaming others or, or, or downplaying it. But at the end of the day, God is not calling us to perfection. He's calling us to humility and repentance. And so, on a vertical level, when we as Christians become aware that we have sinned, then the Bible tells us what to do. It says if you, have, if you confess your sins, right, you tell on yourself to God. Be specific, don't you? Forgive me for my sins. God, I was wrong. I was proud. You confess your sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I believe in the ongoing effectiveness of the blood of Jesus. I don't have to spend my life under condemnation and guilt. God forgives sin. But in addition to confession, God asks us to repent. It's not just, dear Lord, forgive me for what I did, and by the way, I'm planning on doing it tonight, so can I get some advanced credit? That's called mocking God. The Bible says God is not mocked. So in Proverbs 28, it says, he that covers his sins will not prosper. But when we confess and forsake them, we will find mercy. The Lord is full of mercy. A broken and contrite heart, he will not despise. There's nothing that you could do to cause God to say, I don't love you anymore. I will not forgive you. We bring our sin to the Lord. And as a community, we recognize that God is a gracious God, but he's a holy God. And he wants us just to be honest. Lord, I've sinned. Now, oftentimes that's just vertical. But sometimes our sin sins are on a horizontal level. We not only sin against God, but we sin against others. And so the Old Testament had some very elaborate rituals or requirements for when we sin against others, especially when it involved taking something that belonged to someone else. So for example, in the Old Testament, if you stole something, it wasn't enough to just say, God, forgive me. You not only had to pay the person back, but then you had to add a fifth to it. And that was designed to restrain people in the first place. But there are a number of laws in Leviticus. If you find something and you know it's not yours and somebody comes and says, hey, have you found a, a, an ox? And you go, no, no, I haven't found any ox. That's a sin. And, and so you have to restore not only the ox, but notice it says, he shall make restitution in full for his wrong and add to it one-fifth of it and give it to him who he has wronged. But what if the person's not alive anymore? How can I pay him back? Well, if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord, for the priest, beside the ram of atonement. By the way, that's not applicable today. Don't bring me your money and say, hey, I stole from my granddad and he's not living here, Pastor. That's not, that's not what it's talked about. This was back then. Also, every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel which they offer to the priest shall be his. So every man's holy gift shall be his, Whatever any man gives to the priest, it becomes his. And you go, hmm, okay. So how does that relate to us? 
Well, what does it look like as a Christian when we sin against someone else? Thankfully, Jesus spoke about this. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you bring your gift to the altar, in other words, you're coming to worship God, and then you remember that your brother has something against you, you've sinned against someone, and you haven't apologized, right? Jesus said, go, leave your gift at the altar, and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and give your gift to God. So that lays the foundation for, for what we see in the New Testament, and that is to vertically restore relationships. We ought not to think that this is something like, wow, that never happens. This should be the normal part of a Christian experience. So, so guys, if you yell at your wife in angry rage, you can't just say, dear God, please forgive me. You then, on a horizontal level, you go to that person and you say, listen, I'm sorry, I lost my temper, and I ask you to forgive me. If you cheat on a test, you don't just go, dear God, forgive me. You go to your teacher and say, hey, listen, I'm sorry, I stole something. And so we're learning, the Bible says in Acts 24, always keep your conscience void of offense, not just towards God, but towards others. So it gives us a venue to think about this. As we're growing, we want to be disciples of Christ, right? We want to be followers of Christ, trying to be like him. The Bible says to be a spiritual leader, you must be above reproach. And everybody will throw up our hands and go, then we, none of us can. Well, the idea is not so much that there's nothing in our lives that we've ever done wrong, but did we deal with it, right? Did we, did we ask forgiveness? Have we tried to be an example of a repentant Christian? And we're all in that journey, and I trust that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us as a community and as individuals. And so for some of you, maybe the Lord's putting something in your mind. Sometime it may be very tricky, so I would suggest that if it's a complicated case and you're not sure, don't just rush to judgment and go confess your sins to someone without maybe talking it through with another mature Christian to make sure that you're thinking clearly and that you're trying to follow scripture. And so, again, God's telling us, here's how to deal with restoring all of us who from time to time have practiced sin. The third one, though, and this is the one that's kind of the elephant in the room, there's a ritual for people suspected of sin. Now, this passage is difficult because the specific scenario is, what if a man thinks his wife has cheated on him, okay? The difficult part of this passage is that it, it seems incredibly unfair to women, okay? Suspend that judgment. I am going to address that. But the other thing that's unusual is why do they have this elaborate ritual why not just say, hey, did you cheat on me? And if she lied, then God's going to judge her. And if she didn't, then fine. In that culture, other nations had what they call, what theologians call ordeal rituals. And they were strange. But ordeal rituals, you would put the person accused in a dangerous and difficult situation. Like, okay, you didn't cheat on me? Then I want you to jump into this raging river. Because if you didn't cheat on me, then God will spare you. Or I want you to hold hot coals in your hand. And if you didn't cheat on me, then, then your hands won't get burned. And you're like, that's just bizarre. So this was not, some commentaries say, oh, this is an ordeal ritual. There was nothing physically dangerous or painful about this ritual. 
But let's just read it, and then we'll, we'll talk about, wow, that, that, that raises a lot of questions, Pastor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man has intercourse with her and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband and she's undetected, although she has defiled herself and there's no witness against her and she hasn't been caught in the act, if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself, right? You go, okay, I can understand. He should feel jealous. But then we have this strange addition. Or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, right? That's why I almost laugh when people go, the Bible's so irrelevant. I go, really? Irrelevant? This is irrelevant? Nobody ever deals with this kind of stuff, right? The man shall bring his wife to the priest and shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. Now, again, it's very difficult. I did a lot of reading on this to go, okay, what does this stand for? What does this stand for? Barley was the, the lowest of the offerings, the cheapest, right? He shall not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, and we can go all day, oh, frankincense is the presence of God or whatever, but... Let's stick with the big picture. It's a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity. Then the priest shall bring her near. Now, again, I know this is hard. It sounds so cruel, like, why only the woman, right? But hold off on that. Then the priest shall bring her near and have her stand before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel. Probably got that water out of, if you've studied the Old Testament, they had a, a laver, a laver for cleansing where the priest would wash. So he takes some of the water, and then he takes some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle, and he puts it in the water. Now, I don't think what we're supposed to read here is that he picks up like a big handful of dirt and has this bucket of mud. But that symbolically, most of the commentaries, and I think they're right, are, are sensing that in the very presence of God, the dust would symbolize his very presence. So he puts that dust in the water. Then the priest shall have the woman stand before the Lord and let the hair of her head go loose, which in other passages was a symbol of mourning, and placed the grain offering of memorial in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy, and the hand of the priest is to, and in the hand of the priest is to be the water. Now, when it says the water of bitterness, we're not to read in here like, ew, this tastes horrible, like Metamucil or something. I think the idea is just that this is going to bring a painful curse if it's true. And the priest shall have her take an oath and shall say to the woman, if no man is lain with you and if you've not gone astray into uncleanness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, and if you have defiled yourself and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest shall have the woman swear with the oath of the curse. And the priest shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people by the Lord's making. Now you're going, wow, who would be so brazen if they were unfaithful to go, yeah, I swear God can do whatever he wants to me because I didn't do it. You would, you would think, wow, this would probably evoke a confession before we got this far along. Again, there's other things I'll deal with. Notice the consequences. It says, the Lord make your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. I haven't found anybody that says, this definitely means this. We don't know for sure. A number of people suggested 
that the wife is probably already pregnant here, and so it's some form of a miscarriage or some form of a curse on her reproductive organs because we're going to later read that if you haven't done this, you can have children, implying if you have been found guilty and you lie under oath, that you will no longer be able to have children. Now, that does not mean that people who can't have children, God's mad at them. Okay, but we have to read that in the context and in the culture of the time, which in, in that time to not have children, as painful as it is today, was even more painful for a variety of societal reasons. But then it says this, this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell, your thigh waste away. And if a woman is, 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 says the words amen and amen just means she's saying, hey, I agree. Amen means let it be. Okay, so maybe some of you are like, those weird people, when, when someone's preaching, they go, amen. Why do they say that? That's biblical. In the New Testament, it says when someone gives, gives thanks to God, you could say amen. You're just saying, yes, I, I agree. So please don't do this. If I go, now for my last point, don't go, amen. <laughs> because you're going, yeah, I agree. You should get done, okay? But it's not unbiblical, and I'm not expecting everybody to shout and holler amen. But we understand amen means, yeah, I agree. Yes, that's the truth. Let it be, Lord. So, the priest shall then write these curses on a scroll. And again, it's symbolic. He shall wash them off in the water of bitterness, and then he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse, so that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness. And the priest shall take the grain offering from the woman's hand, wave the grain offering before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of grain, offering as a memorial offering, and offering up and smoke on the altar. And afterward... He shall make the woman drink the water, and when he's made her drink the water, it'll come about if she's defiled herself, that the water which brings a curse shall go into her and cause bitterness, her abdomen will swell, her thigh will waste away, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will be free and conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. And we're going, wow. Can we just kind of like skip over that? Being under the authority of her husband, if a woman goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, he'll then make the woman stand before the Lord, the priest shall apply this to her, and the man shall be free from guilt, but the woman shall bear her guilt. Okay, let's deal with the first elephant in the room. I mean, this is the big question. Why? Why is this passage seeming to be only applied to women? All right? Let's not dodge that. So, as I did reading on this, I found two things that I found very helpful. Number one, first, never thought about this, but this actually provided protection for women. One of the ladies in the first service said, it was kind of like a first, an Old Testament PFA. It was, it was protection. You go, what do you mean protection? Well, listen to some of the commentaries, what they said. These provisions ensures that a woman found to be innocent would be preserved from stoning by a mob. Another guy said this, this law was introduced to stop the ill treatment of women who were even suspected and not necessarily guilty of sleeping around. How many relationships do you know of which have been broken apart through inappropriate jealousy? You're like, wow, I never thought about that. And as I thought further, you know, I thought at that time, I would have suspected that a jealous husband would have been far more dangerous to a woman in most cases 
than a jealous wife being physically dangerous to a man. Not to say that that's not possible for a wife to be dangerous. Listen to this quote. This law was given to deter wives from adultery, but also to secure wives against the rage of a hard-hearted husband who otherwise might, upon mere suspicion, destroy her or put her away. Like, wow. In fact, think about in the home, and the guy goes, I know you did. She goes, I didn't. Listen to this quote. The falsely suspected party, if the woman didn't do it, could call the jealous party to put up or shut up, receiving divine vindication through this right and being delivered from any stain on her character. For anyone who's been falsely accused, the benefit of such a right would be immediately apparent. In such a manner, it served both parties by providing a way to destroy or avoid the destructive cycles of jealousy. But I think there's a second possible reason here why, even though it seems unfair, there's another dimension that I found in reading, and that is the preservation of the family line and the inheritance, okay? Sin is sin. God doesn't consider women's sin to be worse than men. But remember, in this culture, the passing on of seed and of inheritance and the legitimacy of firstborn sons and and, and the tribal significance was very big in that culture. So one commentator said this, the unfaithfulness of the wife was a greater threat to the, to the order of the family than that of a husband because it threw the legitimacy of the children into question. And so this law of jealousy was a petition for divine judgment that would bring matters to a head in a situation where continued unresolved suspicion, is this really my kid, could be destructive. It would also ensure that children were granted security that comes from a clearly defined status. Imagine some jealous guy going, that ain't my kid because he doesn't look like me. And so he doesn't take care of him. And then one commentator said this, the law was in place to prevent a man from being suspicious that some of his children were not his. Heirs to a family inheritance, the firstborn, were a very integral part of ancient Near Eastern culture. And likewise, the concept of clans and tribes were important. Hence, knowing that the children of the wives were genetically the fathers was very important. So, for some of you may go, that's not enough, I'm not satisfied. And I want to just be honest here. There are some passages in the Bible that are difficult. In Romans chapter 9, when Paul speaks of God's sovereign grace and election, he says, you might think, why does God find fault? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? So there are times that you'll come across things in Scripture that you're going, I'm not sure I would have done it that way. And God goes, exactly. Because as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. So someone said it this way. They said, when you can't see God's hand, can you trust his heart? Like, this isn't my favorite passage to preach on. I would like to have gone, let's move to number six. But I want to encourage you to remember this, that Jesus is a good God. He loves you. He loves people. And there will be times when you will experience a difficulty or a passage that you might go, I don't like that. And Jesus knows us. In, in John chapter 6, when he was talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, the Bible says that many people said, this is too hard. I don't get that, and I'm not following you anymore. And there are people who will say, ah, I don't like the Bible, and I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. Please, don't do that. 
You know what Peter did when Jesus had that happen and people were going, I'm not following him anymore. He looked over at Peter. He said, Peter, are you leaving too? And you know what Peter said? He said, Lord Jesus, where else can I go? You have the words of life. And so I urge you, cling to Jesus. If you haven't come to Jesus, he's your only answer. He's your only hope. And there may be some things that we'll have to wait till we get to heaven. Paul says, now we see in a glass darkly, but then face to face. But don't let this cast any dispersion on Jesus' love for women, Jesus' love for children, Jesus' love for people. I assure you that Jesus Christ loved you enough that he gave himself on the cross. So at best, God may use unusual measures, but God is good and we can trust him. But I want to just touch on two other things real quick, and that is, let's just talk about this. How do we deal with jealousy in relationships? I mean, the good thing is that Nobody here struggles with that. But you know, some people still do. I mean, it's weird, right? In fact, you'll often hear me say, hey, the church is a hospital. A former church where I pastored, after saying that for a while and encouraging repentance and, 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 and people growing, the elder said to me, why is there so much sin in our church now? I'm like, no, no, no. The same stuff was going on, but the Bible unearths it and then allows people a place to find mercy and forgiveness through Christ. And so, let's face it, some couples struggle with jealousy, and the destructive force of unchecked jealousy within marriage, man, that's tough. I like what one person said, often our spouse knows if we've given our bodies or our hearts to another, no matter how desperately we try to hide it. But other times, I think this is important, jealousy is just plain off the wall and needs to be dealt with, okay? Okay. Some people, think of your shaping influences, right? Things in your past have shaped you. They're not excuses, but they have shaped you to have a, a tendency, perhaps, to have inappropriate jealousy, over-the-top jealousy, right? And unfair jealousy. Bring that to the light. God understands. Don't try to excuse it. Don't oppress your spouse don't just stuff it. Bring it and talk and find that the gospel brings healing. God doesn't want couples to live in an ongoing state of jealousy. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is not jealous. Love believes all things. Love endures all things. And so if you, if you suspect that your spouse has been unfaithful, if you have some real solid evidence that makes you suspicious. Bring it out. And if they're over the top in a rage going, don't read my text, and don't you dare look at my mail, and, and, they, and they call themselves a, a man or a woman of God, and, and they're, you know, really difficult, then sometimes you need to bring in an outside party. But at the same time, can we, by grace, learn to deal with our own insecurities and try to express charity and trusts. And I hope that for many of you, this will evoke positive conversations and helpful conversations revolving around the truths of God's word and the gospel. This ceremony was meant to resolve things. Either the husband was right or he was wrong. Thankfully, it was a way to settle it. But one, one guy said this. I thought this is kind of cool. And by the way, some of those comments were written by women, right? One, one guy said this, at least this ceremony made the entire community aware of the evil of adultery and the seriousness of trying to hide it. 
But I, I want to just touch on one more thing that kind of struck me. Because sometimes it does seem like God takes sexual sin so seriously. Why does he do that? You know, why does God say, when people fornicate and commit adultery, that brings my wrath, that brings my judgment. Is sex bad? No. God created it as a wonderful gift for marriage. It's not just for reproduction. It's not the nasty. But listen to what, this really opened my eyes as I did read on this particular thing. This person said this, coming from a culture that we come from, which is rampantly materialistic, and when it comes to sexuality, people find it difficult to understand why consensual acts between two adults who love each other should be treated as worthy of death in the Old Testament. Come on, man. You just love each other. But then they said this, we'll only begin to understand this when we realize that mankind is symbolic in his deepest root. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, the Bible says, I will make them male and female in my image, and they will become one. And so the marital union between a husband and wife and faithfulness and that oneness of intimacy is designed to reflect the image of God. And as a result of that, the image of God, this person said, is especially focused on this relationship the fruitful bond between man and woman. And given its symbolic importance, when we go, well, you know what, I just want to have another woman, or I don't want to wait till I'm married, or I want to have a relationship with someone of the same sex. When we violate that, as this person said, it's a distortion and an act of idolatry, a monstrous crime against human nature, because it perverts, parodies, undermines, attacks, and violates, and replaces that which is appropriate to marriage between a man and woman. And as they close, it strikes at the very heart of biblical religion. So I think at the end of the day, we go, man, this is painful. I don't even want to go there, right? But this is the gospel. This is the Lord Jesus. This is the one who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. The thing that makes things ugly is when we keep it in darkness. The Bible says people don't want to come to Jesus because men love darkness rather than light. But the mark of being a Christian is that we learn to come to the light. We learn that there's a fountain of mercy with Christ. We learn that we don't have to spend our lives in guilt, shame, insecurity, fear, bondage, oppression. And I want to suggest that if some of you men are oppressing your wives with cruel and harsh and unjust jealousy, that you need to repent of that. You need to get help from that. And if, ladies, you're a victim of that, and your husband is domineering you, then if he refuses to repent, if he calls himself a believer, you know, let's try to deal with this as a community. But ultimately, even though this passage may at first cause us angst, I hope at the end of the day you'll go, man, God is good. He cares about us. Jesus loves us. Jesus forgives us. There's no Humpty Dumpties in the gospel. Jesus can take us in our brokenness and put us back together again. Amen? So let's end at the foot of the cross. Lord, your Holy Spirit speaks to us. And Lord, you may be speaking to different individuals, all of us. May we listen. If the Lord's spoken to you about personal sin that you need to repent of, if you're a Christian, right now, just... 
Ask forgiveness. Be willing to turn away from it. Put it away. If he brings to your heart someone that you need to apologize to, pray over it. Be willing to do that. If you need to talk to someone. If you're struggling with great jealousy, you really don't have good grounds and God's, God's exposed your heart and you realize the problem's not your spouse, it may be you, then ask for God's forgiveness and, and get help. And if you perhaps have committed adultery, there's mercy with the Lord. But not when we persist, but when we repent. Father, thank you so much that the Lord Jesus is gracious and full of mercy. Thank you that he forgives and pardons our sins. But when we come to the cross, we come to confess our sins. All of us struggle to one degree or another with lust. And I pray that you will help us, not just outwardly, but inwardly, to grow in our purity, to grow in our loyalty. For ultimately, Lord, every time we sin, we're committing adultery against you. We're being unfaithful to our wonderful Savior. So may the gospel continue to flow as a fountain of cleansing. And may we as parents raise our children, modeling humility and honesty and, and growth and purity. And may the word of the Lord spread rapidly. May this church continue to reach many for Christ as we celebrate the grace of God in all of our lives. And today we give thanks in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.